listening to the Citizens Church podcast. Citizens Church exists to saturate Bryan College Station, Texas with the good news and love of Jesus. To learn more about Citizens Church, visit us online at citizensbcs.com. Today's message is from Meredith Perryman. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until the heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law and all it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, it really is great to be here with you tonight, and welcome back from spring break. It's nice to see all the faces here with us. So I tell you, as I was beginning to pray, these are not the easiest scriptures in the world. <laughs> so I just want to say up front, but I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit and for our scholars and people who have gone before us, many of whom um, just were with me in this preparation. But as I was preparing for it, I really spent some time, kind of, some time kind of reflecting and really thinking about my relationship with the Word of God throughout my life. You see, I grew up going to church, maybe like many of you, So by the time I graduated high school, I had a pretty strong working knowledge of the main Bible stories. But during my freshman year of college, when I faced rejection at a university that I had been convinced was going to be the greener grass on the other side, um, my parents divorced, and my brother, who had been in and out of rehab for the previous four years, he was in jail, and he was facing trial. Um... When all of that was happening, I never even thought about opening up the Bible for help or comfort. To me, the Bible hadn't been that much different from children's fairy tales that I grew up with, and I just couldn't see how a story about a man who built an ark and filled it with animals could help with this massive amount of pain that I was feeling. So instead of turning to God, I slept during the days whenever I could, And I went out at night, and I numbed myself with alcohol, honestly, to alleviate the pain that I was feeling. And that began a very long walk away from the Lord, where with each step, my heart just grew harder and harder and harder. Seven long years later, there was this one Saturday night, and my girlfriends and I, um, we were just out on that Saturday night, and we were asking ourselves, why in the world can we not find quality guys in this, these clubs or these bars that we're attending? Now, most of us had grown up in a church, so we were familiar with the culture of church, so someone said, hey, let's go tomorrow morning to this church in this big city that has the largest singles ministry in the nation. And so that's exactly what we did. So the next morning when we got there, we discovered that this church didn't have just one singles class. In fact, it actually had like five. And each class had anywhere from 50 to 200 people in each class. So we're standing on the staircase with this pamphlet going, I don't even know which class should we go to. So we're standing there and we're looking at it. And all of a sudden, this really cute guy walked by. And we looked at each other and just went, hmm. Decision made. So we just turned and we just followed him. Yeah, 
So, um, Bill may never know how God used him that day. So, but it was the best decision ever because in that Sunday school class, when the teacher was speaking, it was one of those moments where everything around you kind of fades. And it was as if Father God himself was speaking directly to me into my heart. I just lost it. I went home to my apartment, and I just wept and wept face down on the floor of my bathroom. And I finally surrendered my heart and my life to him, along with all of my hurt and my anger. And when I stood up, I was a new person. I went in looking for a guy to date, but instead I found the lover of my soul. And bonus, I did eventually meet my husband there. (laughs) But one perk of a massive church in a very large city is that when you have to sever your old life and start over, and I had to because I knew the temptation would be too strong for me, they have activities almost every single night of the week, whether it's intramurals, coffee, dinner, Bible studies, etc. So pretty quickly, thank you, Jesus, I found a new community and a new group of friends. And for the very first time, I actually began studying my Bible. I learned a lot from different Bible teachers, and then I learned how to study the Bible for myself inductively, which absolutely changed my life, and it changed my relationship with the Word of God. And through all of that, what I discovered is that the Bible is not just fairy tales, but the Bible is life. It is a door to relationship with my Creator, and that through it, God speaks to me, and the Holy Spirit touches my heart. Well, I just couldn't get enough, so I just devoured it as much as I could. And what I've discovered in the last 22 years is the beauty that you can never, ever exhaust all that there is to learn, that there is always fresh insight, there is always fresh words and touches from the Holy Spirit. And the Lord in his wisdom, he really knows just how to carry you through the journey with him and give increasing revelation with each step. And so my relationship with the word of God actually continues to evolve. So as a child, scripture was just fairy tales. As a young adult, the word was and still is a lifeboat for me, where I learned how scripture is life and can teach you how to live and interact in this world and how it's full of God's blessings and promises. But my journey is actually not over because more recently, God has revealed to me the importance of reading scripture as story within a grander narrative and the story of God. So I want to explain this better, and I do have a point that I'm going to get to. So for most of the last 20 years, I've read scripture, and this is not wrong, it's just limited, to get something out of the Bible for myself in my daily life. I studied the epistles, so I wanted to glean what I needed to know to live better. I'd read passages, I'd highlight blessings and promises, I'd write them down on cards to meditate on, and none of this is bad, none of this is wrong. In fact, it's actually been very super helpful for me, very super helpful for me, but you know what I mean, super helpful for me. But with myself as the focus, I unknowingly bypassed the story of the entire Bible and how everything all fits together and uniquely speaks to the people and the culture of that time because I made it about me. And when I was looking at it with that lens, I missed key truths about God and his plan and in his character. I missed the scope and the significance of the story. And I even misinterpreted a few things. So what does that have to do with our passage for today? What does that have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? 
Well, that's actually how I want to look at our passage for today. As part of God's grander story, through ancient Eastern eyes, as best as I possibly can. And specifically, I want to answer these questions. What was life like when Jesus publicly arrived on the scene? What story and expectations were the people that day carrying? How do the people understand what Jesus said? And then how does it relate to us? So that's kind of where we're going here. So in the first century, especially in the area where Matthew reports that Jesus was ministering, there was actually this very rich and vibrant culture of study and meditation around Scripture, um, which for them was actually the law, which is called the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, in the writings of the prophets. So from a very early age, Jewish children would actually memorize it. They'd memorize all of the Torah. They argued it, and they discussed it endlessly. They were intimately familiar with all its ins and outs, so much so that if one person were to quote um, a line from a particular scroll, well, everyone would know where all the verses surrounding, they'd know what all the verses were surrounding what they quoted. And very often, in response to a question, a rabbi would quote one line of scripture to bring that passage to the hearer's minds, but the answer that he wouldn't vocalize was actually in the next line that he wouldn't even say. And Jesus actually does this in the New Testament. So because of their familiarity with Scripture, they knew some very foundational truths. They knew all that had gone before. So they knew that a loving God had created all and had chosen humanity as his image bearers in his creation. But not only had humanity through Adam and Eve and the deception of the serpent failed as image bearers, they also gave up the authority given them by God, making the task of ruling and reigning and expanding the kingdom humanly impossible. But they also knew that God had given them a promise that he would raise up one of their descendants to rule over and to defeat the deceiver. And they would read the rest of the story, everything after Genesis 3, seeing the hints and the glimmers of the promised one who would come and undo what was done in the garden and save them. So they look, they see Abraham, Moses, David, almost, but not quite. And the story continues. After tumultuous history of ups and downs, exile and return, words from God through the prophets, Malachi's words are recorded, and then there's no more for 400 years. Now, I sat there for a minute and tried to think, 400 years. If you think about it, from the time God brought the people out of Egypt, he was either there in presence or speaking through the judges and the prophets, but now nothing for centuries. Even to put it in perspective, our country is only 244 years old. So for 400 years, it's like there's nothing. And so by the time that Matthew opens, the nation of Israel was actually living under the oppressive rulers of the Romans. And at this time, they were no longer worshiping idols. They seemed to have learned that lesson from their ancestors. In fact, there were sects who actually sought to follow and teach the law precisely. From the absence of God's voice, the law was their authority, and it was how they sought to do God's will. So they were living, and they were waiting. They were looking for the promised mind, and their mind, a Joshua or a David, to lead them to victory and out from under pagan oppression. So this is a story that they knew from Scripture. This is the hope that they were carrying with them when Jesus arrived on the scene. So I want you for a minute to just imagine. Let's say that you are a peasant in that time. You are a farmer. Every day you work, you use every bit of daylight available to try to provide enough food for you and your family, though this is only after the Romans have taken their cut. If you can't work, you run out of food and you die. 
If you get sick, you most likely will die. If you fight back against the Romans, they will hang you on a tree and you will be cursed and you will die. So into this time comes Jesus. Now first you hear rumors. Then you see what Matthew tells us at the end of chapter 4 where it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So if he's in your town, how can you not go? If he's teaching, how can you not seek to hear, if only to see a healing or perhaps to even be healed yourself? So he goes up on a hill and you follow. He sits down and you stop and you wait. He starts to teach and you strain with every fiber of your being to hear what he is saying. And he begins, and right away, you feel like he is speaking to you, right? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, you're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn the meek. Well, you have been mourning. You have no power. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, the merciful, the peacemakers. You are all of these things, and you want to see God. You desperately want to be called a child of God. He says, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And you're thinking, I'm persecuted. I'm persecuted. He's talking about me. This is Jesus' hook, and he's caught everyone around him um, with it. So then he goes into being salt and light. And you understand salt and light. You know the difference between food that has salt and food that doesn't. You know how oppressive the dark is at night and how just a little light can pierce the darkness. And you like all of that. And as you look around, you like that Jesus is bringing his kingdom announcement to all the wrong people. He's bringing it to the poor, the sick, and the hurting. And you think, maybe this is another good teacher. Perhaps even an inspiring teacher, like one of the minor prophets. You might hope that he's got the spirit of Elijah in him. If you're really daring, really audacious, you might think that he could come close to the great prophet foretold by Moses. So you're all in. But then, in just a few sentences, Jesus takes a feel-good, inspiring sermon and turns the whole Jewish world upside down, starting with, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. With this claim, Jesus takes it to a whole new level, explaining that he is not just another prophet, continuing the story as it has always been told, and said he is the one about whom the whole story has been pointed all along. And then he starts again to blow apart your expectations. So right now, I want to pause for a minute, because we have heard this so many times. We cannot understand the enormity of what Jesus just said, but it is huge. He is saying that he's just not like a prophet, but he is the very fulfillment of the Torah and the writings of the prophets. So what does that mean? But what we understand now, but what many missed, is that Jesus in the kingdom of heaven was the someone and the something greater to come that all of the teaching of the Old Testament pointed to. He was bringing the Old Testament to completion by his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. 
He was living out the prophecy spoken long ago by the prophets, the pinnacle being his death on the cross, in which the whole ceremonial system of the Old Testament, both the priesthood and the sacrifices, found its perfect fulfillment. They were but a shadow of what was to come, and Jesus was the substance. And not only that, but Jesus perfectly obeyed the moral law of God as no others could, and he taught what obedience would involve for all who would follow him. Now, the people thought they already knew how to obey God because they had the Torah and all of its commandments, and it was their authority. But then here comes Jesus, speaking with this new authority. Jesus, who blessed the poor, who called them to be salt and light, and then began to really teach them how to live. Jesus, who had been going around announcing the kingdom not only to the law-observant Pharisees and scribes, but also to all the wrong kinds of people those Pharisees and scribes sought to avoid. So Jesus called God's people to come under the rule and the reign of their true king. And he took the understanding of their world and turned it upside down as he talked and taught about this kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom was an alternate community that Jesus was setting up with a totally different value system than the one that they lived in. It's a community where generosity, peacemaking, serving each other, humbling themselves, and seeking others' well-being were its highest values. The people had been trained one way. So Jesus was seeking to retrain them with his teaching and with his life. And everything he taught fulfilled the intent and the purpose of the commandments. Over and over again, he demonstrated that he wasn't simply about outward obedience and an appearance of righteousness. What he was going for was a renovation of the heart. He wasn't about abolishing the law, but revealing the true depth and the heart of its meaning. So picking up where we left off, as that peasant that's listening, Jesus doubles down on his claim of not wanting to get rid of the law by saying, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The law will not pass away, it will not be discarded, not a single letter or a part of a letter, until it has all been accomplished. And this fulfillment will not be complete until heaven and earth pass away in a mighty rebirth. When that happens, time as we know it will stop, and the written words of God's law will no longer be needed, for in them all things will have been fulfilled. So the point that he's making is really that the law is as enduring as a universe. So again, what about that Jewish peasant who is listening to Jesus on the hillside? He's listening to Jesus and he thinks, that's potentially exciting. You know, that could be amazing. Maybe he can be the one that we've looked for, that true Jewish Messiah that will forever throw off the oppressive yoke of the Romans and establish proper worship in the temple. He thinks, finally, the Jewish Messiah may be here to save us from the Romans and bring in his kingdom. But then he hears, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus hits him with, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And just like that, he's broken. He's undone because Jesus' words seem absolutely impossible. He can barely feed himself and his family, and he knows the Pharisees. They're rich. 
They can afford to practice righteousness. He's seen them at the synagogue. He's seen them in the street. And he knows that he'll never be able to practice righteousness like that, much less exceed it. And through the rest of his teachings, while Jesus deals with measures from the law, great and small, he falls into this despair that he's not known before. Because he doesn't yet understand this Jesus of Nazareth and this new kingdom. But if he sticks around long enough, he will. So how is he to understand what Jesus was saying? How are we? We can all agree that Jesus was serious about what he was saying. We can't push it aside and say that was then, this is now. But it is. It's a tall order. The verses do seem impossible, but it doesn't stop there because as Jesus continues to teach, which we'll study in the weeks to come, he exposes issues of the heart, pride, lust, contempt, and he called his followers to an even higher level of obedience and faithfulness in relationship with others that also seems impossible. So what is he doing? What is he saying? Jesus is forming Jeremiah 31 people. And Jeremiah 31 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Jesus was bringing in the new covenant, which brings in a new relationship, one where the law will actually be in the hearts and the minds of God's people, where God will do something to embed and eternalize his will, not on tablets, but on their hearts. But how? How will he do this? Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I never cease to be amazed by the goodness of God. He promised them in the new covenant that he will put his law and his spirit inside of us, his spirit which will cause us to walk in his statutes and follow God's ways. But how can he do that when we are so full of filth and sin and yuckiness? Well, the end of Jeremiah 31, 34 answers that. And he says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. He will do it through forgiveness. I am missing an entire page of my notes. Okay, so what he's saying here is that he will do it through his forgiveness. So um, he will bring that renovation of our hearts as we draw near to him as he, um, and through relationship with him as he just comes and transforms us into the image of his son. Okay, so as I bring this to a close, I'd love to invite the band to come on up. Y'all, the one who created this world and loves us with the love that we cannot fathom has given us all that we need to know him. And I love that we have prayer and listening prayer where we can hear his voice. We have the Holy Spirit and all of his gifts. 
But all of those things must be founded in the truth of his word. You need to know it, and not just from a podcast or from a sermon. You need to know it for yourself. And not just a book here and there or a passage here and there that may or not be taken out of context. It's really worth knowing the whole counsel of God and taking the time to learn what is going on, what is being said, and truly how it fits into God's grander story. If only we grasp what was right at, the t- at our fingertips. When I was teaching community Bible study, people would kindly encourage me and they would say, Meredith, you have so much wisdom. I never get that when I read God's word. And I'd want to tell them, thank you, but really I just studied. You know, God did the rest. There is wisdom for anyone who will take time to be in the word. It's available to one and it's available to all. And God is positioned and ready to disclose his heart and truth to you at any moment. It is life and it is power. And through it, through time in it, God grabs hold of our heart and continues his renovation. So let's let him. Together, let's surrender our hearts to him. and Let's let him do his work. Let's be a community obviously marked by him, not for our glory, but for his. And let's commit to expanding his kingdom here where we live. Thanks for joining us today for the message. We hope it was encouraging to you. To learn more about Citizens Church, including gathering times and locations, or to get financial support, please visit citizensbcs.com. And again, thanks for listening to the Citizens Church podcast.